looking back and looking forward can be a good and a constructive and a helpful and an encouraging and even exciting thing, but then it also can be kind of scary to look ahead. Uh, Some of us look forward with great anxiety about what lies ahead of us in the coming year. And sometimes it can be, frankly, kind of terrible to look back. Our pasts have their share of painful and shameful memories. And so looking back and looking forward is sometimes a tension uh, between the good and the bad, the encouraging and the discouraging. And this passage for today, Psalm 139, has the same kind of tension. It has, uh, has us pulled in two directions. So watch for that as we look through the psalm together. And then listen for the three things that this psalm teaches us about God. Three things. The first thing that it teaches us about God, Psalm 139, is that God is our inescapable reality. Psalm 139, which was written by Israel's King David, tells us that God is our inescapable reality in at least four ways. Look at first verses 1 through 6. God's, here God's knowledge is infinite and inescapable. It says in verses 1 through 6, I am, you search me and you know me. I am the name of God. You know when I sit and when I rise. You consider my thoughts from afar, my going out and my lying down you discern. You are familiar with all my ways. Surely before a word is on my tongue, I am, you know it completely. Behind and before, you, he- you hem me in, and you have laid the palm of your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I am unable to scale it. There, the, the knowledge of God is infinite, and it's inescapable. Notice these various things in these verses that are kind of paired together. It says, sit and rise, going out and lying down, behind and before. And this is a very common literary device in the Bible. Very often, the writers of, the, of Scripture use two opposites to represent everything. East and west, north and south means everything, every place. Um, and so it's teaching us that God's knowledge is complete. Is there anything that can be excluded from the list that's given in verses 1 through 6? He knows your thoughts. He knows your motivations. He knows your future. His knowledge is too wonderful, too high it's, it's like a cliff face, and, and we look up at it and we say, how can I scale that? How could I possibly climb up the face of that? So that's the first thing. God's knowledge is infinite and inescapable. In verses 7 through 12, God's presence is infinite and inescapable. Psalm 139 says, Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I spread out my bed... It should say, on the grave. That's my typo. If I I spread out my bed in the grave, behold, you are there. Were I to rise on the wings of the dawn and the light on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And then I thought, surely if darkness crushes me, and if light becomes night around me, even darkness will not be too dark for you. And And the night will shine like the day. Darkness is as light to you. And this this part of Psalm 139 is asking, where can we go where God is not? Notice the pairings again. Heaven and the grave. This side of the sea and the other. Day and night. Darkness and light. There's no place that we can go to escape God because His presence is infinite 
and inescapable. Well, then in verses 13 through 18, we've seen how in this psalm, God's knowledge and his presence are infinite and inescapable. Here in verses 13 to 18, God's power is infinite and inescapable. For you gave birth to my kidneys. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully extraordinary. Your works are wonderful, I know full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was wrought in the secret place, when I was colorfully woven in the depths of the earth, my embryo your eyes saw. In your book, all of them were written. My days were fashioned before even one of them came to be. And for me, how precious are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. I wake up, and I am still with you. And here God's power is infinite and inescapable. He made us. He made you. Your body and your frame, even in the womb, all the way down to the thoughts of your heart, the shape of your soul. He created that too. The shape of your body, the shape of your soul. Is created by God. He has power over us. Even every one of our days, the, the, every last one is ordained by Him from the moment of conception to the last breath. That's what it says here in these verses. They're all mapped out by God before we ever even opened our eyes or took a breath. And so God's power is infinite and inescapable. And then in uh, verses 19 through 24, there's the last part of the psalm. I'll read it here. If only you, God, would slay the wicked, bloodthirsty men. Get away from me, who speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, I am, and loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This last section strikes us as a bit different. Maybe a departure from the themes of the, the, the previous topics of the psalm here. It goes uh, from talking about the sort of high, glorious majesty of God to sort of being kind of a, a rant against certain kinds of people, uh, the bad people. And uh, maybe it's even a bit embarrassing to read this, and, and maybe we even, at first blush, might say, I wish I could sort of edit that out so that I could read all this to my friends and they wouldn't be offended by it. Um, but that would be a mistake. How are we to take this section? First, I think we should notice uh, that it's, it's right to be outraged about injustice and violence and wickedness. It's right to be outraged about it. Uh, there, it's right to cry out to the infinite, inescapable God about injustice and violence. It's right. Uh, one pastor put it this way. He said, I hope you don't get over your outrage. I, I, you know, we could ref we, when we look at the news and when we see the things that have happened, I hope that you don't ever reach the point where your soul doesn't care anymore and says, oh, well, one person lives, one person dies, one, one, one nation has peace, another has war. I guess it's all just the way of things, right? I hope, we, I hope you don't get over your outrage because there are things that are worth getting outraged about. So that's one, that's one important thing to note. But then also... Uh, there are lots of prayers like this in the Psalms. I think we should take them seriously. We, we do, of course, need to understand them in light of the cross of Jesus, but that doesn't make passages like this one any less true or important. 
I think we, in terms of understanding this passage in light of the, the rest of the psalm, we need to say that these verses are definitely connected to the rest of the psalm. Previously, we saw how God's knowledge, presence, and power are infinite and inescapable. But in this section, we see how the holiness and justice of God is inescapable. David, the writer, is describing God's holiness and justice by contrasting it with the injustice and the violence that we see in the world around us. He's basically saying this God is not like those awful people. And isn't that a good thing? And God will hold them accountable. That's a good thing too. That's what he's, some of what he's saying here in this last section of the psalm. That's Psalm 139 as best I understand it. Just kind of going through and explaining it as we go. But by now I hope that you can feel that there's a tension in this psalm. A great tension for the reader of this psalm. Let me ask you, let me put it to you this way. Are you comfortable with the idea? Does it make you happy to think that there is someone who infinitely knows you? Who is inescapably present with you? who is completely powerful over you, who is supreme in his holiness. When we start putting it in those terms, maybe we begin to squirm in our seat a little bit. Because the second thing, the first thing that that Psalm 139 told us was that God is our inescapable reality. But the second thing that Psalm 139 tells us is that, as strange as it is to put it this way, God is a radical threat to us. Notice David's language in the early part of the psalm. In the first few verses, he sounds kind of tentative, actually. He seems a bit troubled by what he knows about God, especially in verse 6, when it says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And this word wonderful is not like a real positive word. Uh, We tend to use the word wonderful to mean like, Wow, that's wonderful. See, but that's not what this psalm is saying. He's not saying, Yay, God's knowledge is wonderful. He's saying the, the tone of the word is more like, This is too much. I'm overwhelmed by this. I'm daunted by this. I'm even a little bit scared by it. The fact that he knows everything. And this is, look at what he says in verse 7. He says, where can I get away? (laughs) Is there there any place where I can go where you're not going to see me? Where can I get away? How can I escape the God who is always there, always knowing? always looking at me with holy eyes. So David is feeling threatened. In verses 11 and 12, he says, if only I could get away, if only darkness could somehow cover over me, and if things were so black that no one could see, then maybe you couldn't see. But he says, the problem is, you can see in the dark. You have night vision. You see? And so even in the dark, I can't escape it. So verses, these verses, 7 through 9 and, and 11 and 12, they kind of remind me of the story of Jonah. Jonah actually took David up on this challenge. He actually, uh, he, he would have grown up hearing this psalm, by the way, so he kind of, he, he would have known about this. And he, he actually got up on, and rose on the wings of the dawn and went to the far side of the sea. He said, okay, I wonder if this works. And uh, only if you know the story, you know that it didn't work. God was there too just like David would have told Jonah if he could have. Adam and Eve did the same thing in the garden when they sinned and they had been used to being in the presence of God and just sort of fully uh, being known uh, to God and, and by God. 
Adam and Eve did the same thing. Once they had sinned, they covered themselves up. They hid themselves. They tried their best to put some distance between them and God. They understood that this kind of God, the God who is infinite in His knowledge, in His, in his power, in His presence, they, in His holiness, they realized that this kind of God is a radical, unmatched threat. And because we're all the children of Adam and Eve, I think we all feel that way sometimes too. We wish that there were some things that God didn't see. We wish that there were some times when He wasn't with us. We wish that there were some things over which God didn't have power in our lives. Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, we've heard Brad quote from many times. He, he described, he, the term he used for this kind of feeling was uh, cosmic claustrophobia. Cosmic claustrophobia. We can't bear the idea of someone having complete, unfiltered knowledge and power over us. We hate the thought of an inescapable presence in our lives. If you stop and think about it just in those terms, there is an inescapable presence in your life. That sounds more like kind of like a horror movie than it does something wonderful. So Tim, back to, Tim Keller told this story uh, <clears throat> from the writings of Jean-Paul Sartre, the, the 20th century French philosopher. It illustrates the tension that's here in Psalm 139. Imagine you're looking through a keyhole at someone in a door. And you're peeking through, and they don't know you're there, and you're enjoying it. Because it's kind of fun to spy on someone and see what they do when they don't know that they're being watched, right? Have you ever wanted to do that? Have you ever spied on someone like that? Have you ever done that? Don't answer that. Suddenly, you hear a sound, and you turn your head in another direction, and you realize that there's someone looking through a different keyhole at you. Isn't that kind of scary? That changes everything. Just a moment before, you were having, a, you're having fun. There was a little smile on your lips as you watched someone else, but maybe now you started to sweat. And maybe you started to move awkwardly. Who is that looking at you? And why are they looking at you? What are they thinking about as they watch you? And what should you do next? Once you realize that you're, being, that you're the one being watched, then the whole thing is no longer enjoyable. And I think that that story describes well one of, the, one of the main points here in Psalm 139. If this description of God is accurate, the infinite one who knows and is everywhere and is all-powerful and is so holy, if that's accurate, then we, we cannot avoid being seen and known. And that can be kind of terrifying. Why? Because why would it be terrifying to us to be known? Well, because we know that there are things inside us buried way deep down with cobwebs on them, maybe even, that we don't want anyone to know. And the idea that someone might know those things, the things that we keep in the lockbox, the idea that someone would know those things is dreadful to us. But here's the real catch. Here's the real tension that we live in as human beings. We don't want to be seen and known, and yet we want to be seen and known. We have to be seen and known. That's part of what it means to be human. And so here we are, we live in this tension. I don't want anyone to see the true me. But I do want somebody to see the true me. Think of it this way. 
Uh, There's absolutely nothing more dehumanizing than to be ignored, right? For somebody to be there, present with you, and yet ignore you. Imagine, sort of a thought experiment for a moment, imagine you wanted to call customer service at, say, Quest. Have you ever done this? First, it's kind of difficult to find the number that you're supposed to call. It's almost like they don't want to even talk to you. And then when you find the number and call, who answers the phone? Well, it's not a person. It's a robot. A robot answers the phone. A computer, fine. I like to think of it as a robot. And uh, when the robot answers, you punch a few numbers, and then you're told that it's going to be 20 or 30 minutes wait before you can actually talk to a person. And so you sit and wait and imagine, just only imagine, completely hypothetical thought experiment that you're on waiting for cu- on customer service line. You wait for about 20 minutes, and then all of a sudden, the answering robot hangs up on you. So you call back, and you go through the whole process again, and then you have the same thing happen again. It hangs up on you again, and you cry out in frustration, Gah! I just wish that I could talk to a person. And why do we feel that way? Because the whole thing is so impersonal that it dehumanizes us. Have you ever heard somebody say, I'm just a number in their system. I'm dehumanized. It's impersonal. Being ignored and dehumanizing, even in, even in a trivial sense, hurts us. We don't like it. We want to be known. We want to be seen and heard. What does every kid in the world say? Hey, Mom, look, look. See what I'm doing. Listen, listen to this thing that I, I have to say. Every kid in the world does that. And even though we grown-ups don't put it in exactly those terms, we never really outgrow that, do we? We want somebody to see We want somebody to know. Can you think of any worse feeling in the world than the realization that you're making absolutely no difference? That you're having no impact at all. That that they wouldn't make any difference at all if you weren't there. But there's the tension. We want to be seen and known. We need it to be fully human. And yet we desperately fear being seen and known. Because if someone peers at us through the keyhole, they'll get an unfiltered view of our hypocrisy and our inconsistency, our dishonesty, pettiness, and selfishness. So there you go. That's the human condition. We're stuck in it. So we all cover up and hide just like Adam and Eve did. And is there any way out? Is there any way to get out of this? Well, yes, there is. And in an understated way, David describes it in verses 10 and 11. In verse 10 it says, uh, no, sorry, verse 9 and 10. Uh, Were I to rise on the wings of the dawn and alight on the far side of the sea? What does it say? Does it say, there I will find your daunting power and your scary, wilting gaze? No. In verse 10 it says, there your right hand will guide me and your right hand, there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. And here's the third thing that we learn from Psalm 139. And it's that God is a transforming delight. How can that be? How can David suddenly say, this is a good thing? After all he's, after sort of all he's said so far, even between the lines, how can this suddenly become a good thing? Well, think of it this way. Let me ask you this. What if? What if the God who is always there, who knows you, has complete power over you, and is holy, holy beyond our comprehension, what if that God didn't use his knowledge of you against you. 
You see, we're sinful people in a sinful world, and we automatically expect anyone who can see into the very depths of our soul, anyone who knows us enough to have dirt on us, we expect anyone like that to exploit the dirt, to use it against us. And ultimately, what we fear the most, we expect them to reject us and say, I've seen what you're really like, and I hate you. That's what we expect. We expect them to use us up as best they can and then lose us for good. But God is not like us. What if God used his knowledge, presence, power, and holiness for you and not against you? What if he used it to guide you and hold you, as David describes there in verse 10? What if he's using his knowledge, presence, power, and holiness for you? Then they suddenly become a delight not a threat to us. Look at what David says in verse 17. He says, How precious are your thoughts, O God. This is the the language of ultimate wealth. Gold, silver, jewels, money in the bank. That kind of precious. In the beginning of the psalm, David was recoiling from God, looking at his thoughts. And now he's looking into God's thoughts, and he says they're a treasure. The fact that God knows him at the end of the psalm is a delight. Look at verses 23 and 4. Search me, he says. Know me. Test me. Lead me. He's asking God to continue to dig deeper, drill down God, and know me more than I've ever been known before. How does that change in perspective take place? How can David go from here to there? How can we go from here to there? How can we resolve the tension that we live in? David knows that the God who knows him will love him despite all the dirt he has on him. David knew it only from the pictures and the shadows that God had revealed to that point. But we who live on this side of the cross have a clearer picture of what God is like even than David did. We want to get away from God, and yet we are made for His presence. If we actually managed to get away from His presence, it would be a disaster. We were built for the presence of God. And if we actually managed to escape the whole thing, it would destroy us. It would result in the disintegration of our bodies, our minds, our souls. And that's the cross. Jesus took upon Himself that disintegration, that destruction. The absence of the presence of God. The absence of the power of God. The turning away of God's eye. Jesus experienced on the cross. He deserved to be in the presence of God forever, and yet he was cast out. He was the light of the world, but his death experienced the ultimate darkness. The sun even symbolically went black that day. They stripped him naked so that he could be seen completely. In body, at least, symbolically. He could be seen completely by everyone. They mocked him for who he was. They exploited him for everything they could. And then they rejected him unto death. All of our worst nightmares. He lived them out. Why did he do that? And you know, he didn't have to, you know. He could have walked away at any point. And I don't know about you, but, but knowing what lies buried in my soul, I'm really kind of surprised that he didn't. Why would he do that for me? 
Instead of walking away, he took it all on himself. He traded places with us. Everything that is wrong with you, everything that is wrong with you, Jesus paid for it. As he was being stripped naked, cast into darkness, and rejected, we were being set free from the tension that we live in in this life of wanting to be known completely and yet not wanting anyone to ever know us. When God looked at Jesus, he saw all the muck in your heart. And when God looks at you now, he sees all the perfection of his son. That's what took place at the cross. Tim Keller again, he asked this. Listen, do you know what it's like? Do you know what it's like to know that the only eyes in the universe that matter are looking at you approvingly. The only eyes that count look at you approvingly. Or I could put it this way. Have you ever seen someone who had smiley eyes? Have you ever known someone like that? You can see their love simply in how they look at you. And if you're in Christ, that's how God looks at you. The cross proves that the knowledge God has of you, he will not use against you. Jesus knew what you were like, but he stayed on the cross. He didn't have to, but he wanted to because he loves you. He sees every bit of you all the way down to the bottom. But he loves you anyway. But wait, there's more. As one writer put it, we often read this psalm in the abstract. God's everywhere. He's like some kind of vast spirit. He's here. He's there. If you go in this room, he's there. And if you go in the other room, guess what? He's also there. And if you travel to a different nation, and, and if, you're in the, if you're in an airplane or if you're on a boat, guess what? God's there too. And we just sort of tend to universalize it and spiritualize it. And it becomes actually kind of like Santa Claus. You know, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. You see? But it changes everything to read Psalm 139 with Jesus in mind. It changes everything. Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And if Jesus is omnipresent, that changes everything. When Jesus says, I'm with you when you're suffering, when you're betrayed, when you're rejected, he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean, hey, don't worry. I see you. I got you. I won't forget about all the things you've done. I won't forget about, wh- about the way all those bad people treated you. I noticed. When Jesus says, I'm with you in suffering, what he means is, I've suffered too. I've entered into it. He, he means that he has taken on every kind of suffering. He's taken on every one of your failures. Name it. What's the worst failure in the, that you have in your history? What's the one that you dread people finding out about the most? He took that on. Every failure, every injustice, all the rejection that you will ever experience, he took upon himself in order to resolve that tension. The tension of wishing that we could be loved and yet dreading that it ever be so. Now you can be truly known and truly loved. We we all can, just like we've always wanted. Amen.